Last week, we started a new short series after completing 50-some weeks preaching through the book of Luke. And so this fall, we're going to be doing some other topical stuff, and uh, we're talking about wisdom. A little later in the fall, we're going to be talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm excited about that. And then I'm sure as we head uh, towards the end of the year and the uh, new year, we're going to get back to some verse-by-verse book studies as well. Last week, we introduced a, a really helpful question. And we read some of the Proverbs, the writings of Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived uh, besides Jesus. And we introduced this really simple, basic, but really helpful question. And that question was this, what's the wise choice for me? What's the wise choice for me? And we we noted how oftentimes this question can be more helpful for you as you're processing decisions than simply asking, is this right or wrong? Because a lot of times you can, you can justify, well, it's not wrong, but if you pause and you really process it through the lens of, is this wise, the, the bells start going off and you go, no, this is not the wise choice for me. And we had three different areas that we said we want you to process that question through. And one of them is when I'm honest with myself about you know, my own weaknesses, about what I did last time I put myself in this situation about what, you know, what I did last time I put myself with this group of friends. Um, in my current season of life, you know, maybe you're in that season, you've got little kids at home, it's crazy, uh, you, you know, you're just trying to keep your head above water, and at that, in that season of life, uh, that great opportunity at work may not be such a great opportunity. It may be very unwise to step into that opportunity. And then uh, what we said was when I consider my future, I have hopes and dreams for my future. I have things that I want to see true in my life down the road. And when I consider my future, is this choice the wise choice for me? When I consider that I want my kids to grow up and have a a vibrant relationship with God, is this thing the right thing for me to do? Is it it right to, to, to head down that path, that direction? When I, when I think about the marriage I want to have in 20 years, am I making wise choices now to bring me to that point? And so, if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and catch up because I think it's one of the most helpful questions you can ask as you uh, process decisions in your life, and you can uh, go back to our podcast or website and uh, catch up on that talk. Now, today, um, I remember something from my childhood that used to drive me crazy, and it's kind of funny now because I, I do the same thing to my kids. Maybe uh, you did this too. You know, when you're a, younger, the big question, your parents would tell you to do something and your big question was what? Ready? Why? Yes. Why? And then what would your, your parents say? Because, exactly. Because I said so. Or follow it up with, you know, because I'm the dad or I'm the mom, right? And then they say this other thing. Just trust me. I find myself saying this to my kids. Just trust me. Like, I want, I have your best interest at heart here, and you know, I'm only like 30 some years older than you, kid. You know, you're, I know you're so experienced at life at the great age of four, um, but just trust me in this, you know? You'll understand when you're older. And I'm telling you, when you're four, that just seems so wrong, didn't it? You're like, no, that's not right. I deserve an explanation. I deserve to know the whole story. I deserve. I, I, I need it, right? Now, here's, here's something we do as Americans when it comes to God. I think we do the exact same thing as many of your four-year-old's parents. 
And that is that oftentimes we expect God to give us a full explanation of his actions and his directives in Scripture that he, he tells us. We want to know why he does what he does, why he allows what he allows, why he asks us to do what he asks us to do. And doggone it, if he doesn't tell us, well, we're not going to do it. I think this is one of the, the things we see all over in our culture. In theology, in, in the way we, we study and view and understand God, it works itself out like this. If God says something we don't like, we push back, we negotiate, or we flat out reject anything that kind of pushes against our modern sensibilities. Well, you're saying I need to do my morality that way? I, I don't think so. You're saying I need to do my finances with that kind of generosity? I don't think so, Right? You're saying I need to do my business deal that way, you know, with integrity. Eh, you know, you just don't understand. That's the, that, you know, get with modern times. There's several reasons I think this is particularly true of us Americans. Because the first one is, come on, we're Americans. We can't even imagine the idea of submitting to a king, right? I mean, that's why we went to war and threw tea bags into the, the Boston Harbor, right? Come on, we're Americans. We elect our representatives. And so I think a lot of times what Americans end up doing is sort of treating God like an elected official, you know? And oftentimes like one that just got narrowly voted in, you know? <laughs> and when God says, trust and obey, you know, I mean, we don't trust our elected officials, so many of them, do we? 49% of them or 51, you know, whatever side... You're like, I don't trust any of these guys. And a lot of times we end up treating God the same way. You end up treating God like somehow he's just a little bit bigger than us. You know, part of that is because we're enlightened modern people, right? I mean, we understand stuff. We're not like ancient people. You can know almost anything you want to discover just with a simple Google search. And we've discovered so much of the way that God designed the world to work. You know, science, a good term is thinking God's thoughts after him. And we've discovered how he's made things to work. We know what causes weather systems. We know about DNA, right? We've mapped about 90% of the human genome. And I think a lot of times with, with much knowledge comes in arrogance. Comes in arrogance. And there's so many other things that in areas of life, we just don't have to really submit to the way things are, at least the way they were, you know, a couple hundred years ago, right? If you get a disease, you just cut it out. For, like, human reproduction, at one point, if you, you know, if you were barren, the only thing you could do is pray and, and stuff, and now we have things, we have science, right? In fact, some of you are here today, or your kids are, because of that. We defy some of the laws of gravity by building tubes and flying through the air, right? Something that people a couple hundred years are just like, it blow their minds. And you're like, well, it's not actually defying the laws of gravity. I, I know, I know. The physics and, you know, lift, I get it. That's my point exactly. It's my point exactly is that with a lot of knowledge, oftentimes comes some arrogance. And we, we've lost a lot of the sense of wonder and awe of God. When in reality, the more we understand the vastness of the universe and everything, I think the more we should be in awe of God. We've lost, when God says, just trust and obey in this area, I want you to trust and obey 
instead of trusting and obeying, because we've lost our, our awe and reverence of God, we tend to just cross our arms and go, I'm not going to do that until you explain to me why I need to do that. I'm not going to do that until you give me a good explanation that I like. You remember when, you're, uh, when your granddad used to pull quarters out of your ears? And you know, you're a little kid, and it was the most amazing thing. You just couldn't believe how he did it. And then you started getting a little older, and Grandpa did too. He started getting a little slower, right? And then you caught, it, caught the sleight of hand out of the side of your eye, and all of a sudden, you know, you're like, all right. You love your grandpa, but you lose that sense of wonder, right? And I think a lot of us in our culture have lost that sense of wonder and awe. And Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived, would write some very, very strong things about wisdom. In fact, he would say the beginning of wisdom is actually the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to have wisdom in your life, I mean, you can go do, you know, learn a lot of information, but if you really want to have true wisdom in your life, it comes with that, with fearing God. And another spot, he says, it comes with trusting God, with trusting God with all your heart. That's at the heart of wisdom. That's where it is, you know, but so many times we just, we just want an explanation first before we'll trust God. We want to know all the facts and all the details first. I uh, had a good friend. His name's Steve Duffy. And when, six or so years ago, uh, when we were praying about starting this church and God had provided a spot for us in the event center next door and uh, all these sort of things were coming together and he'd spoken so clearly and led so clearly in a few different areas. Even besides all that, we're going, really, am I really kind of do this, God? We're praying about it, right? And I remember being on the phone with them. And I'm just terrified, right? I'm terrified of stepping out. I'm terrified of doing this thing. And as he's processing with me on the phone, he's like, hey, well, what are you really scared of? And I had to stop because at the time we were stepping out, but you know, not until a year later would we have to walk away from a perfectly good job. You know? But at that point in time, I didn't know any of that. At that point in time, really, as, as I talked to, to my friend, I said, well, I guess the only thing I'm, I guess the main thing is, what if I fail? What if I look just foolish and ridiculous? And he told me something that I thought it was like so not encouraging. Some of you have friends like this. He goes, well, I think God's called me to do plenty of things that didn't succeed. (laughs) I'm like, that's not helpful, dude. You're not helping me. See, so many times we want all the information before we're willing to step out and obey what God says, whether that's you know, in, your, in your moral life, in your financial life, whether that's a ministry thing or a faith, step of, of faith he's asking you to take, or maybe um, you know, it's adoption, or I don't, I don't know what the thing is for you. But you know that God's calling you into this, or you know there's an area of obedience that he keeps tapping on your shoulder, and, and you don't know. And ultimately, a lot of that is the fear of looking foolish in front of your friends, in front of other people. And here's, here's what we're going to look at today is that there's a level of intimacy and there's an experience with God that you will not experience unless you learn to trust and obey. That God wants to do something in your life and unless you can get past this thing of always having to have all the information you're, you will miss out 
on many of the things that God wants to do in you and on the depth of relationship he wants to have with you. And so to illustrate this today, uh, we're going to look at a cool account in 2 Kings 5. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn over there. Otherwise, it's on the screen behind me. And if, if you grew up in church, you've probably heard this story at some point. If you didn't grow up in church, you may have never heard this story. And uh, if that's you, man, we're so glad that you're here. One of the primary reasons we did all this is so that you would find a place to come and connect and, and find relationship with God. And so this story is about a, a commander of the army of, of a country called Aram, uh, which is just north of Israel. In fact, it's modern-day Syria. Uh, Aram became modern-day Syria. And it took place roughly 100 years after the reign of King Solomon, who we talked about a lot last week. And it took place about 800, that's about 850 years before Jesus. And so this is a really cool story, and it's about this guy, and his name is Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, here's what you got to know about the situation. Um, leprosy in ancient times was, was a, a lonely and painful and slow death sentence. In fact, one of the problems with leprosy um, it wasn't just, you know, you think of leprosy if, you, if you've experienced or seen, you know, maybe some, some movies. It wasn't just that your skin would, you'd get a skin condition and it would start to fall off. One of the most dangerous things about leprosy and, and was that you would, uh, it would attack your nervous system and the nerve endings. And so you'd lose feeling in the ends of your fingers, you'd lose feeling in your face, and you'd lose feeling in... Um, your toes, you'd lose the, the sense of your eyes being dry that makes you blink. You'd lose all that. And so a lot of people would die from leprosy, not just because of the disease itself, but because they would reach out and, and touch a fire, something hot, and not even realize they'd been badly burnt. Or they'd, they'd damage their foot or walk on a, on a broken ankle or a sprained ankle and not even know it. And, and because of that, the infection... The infection would, would be the thing that would take him out. It would kill him. It was, a, it was a horrible way to die. And there was no cure. There was no cure. And so this guy, this strong, valiant warrior who's used to being in control, who's used to barking orders and everybody does what he says, he's, he's used to being large and in charge, and all of a sudden he's hit with this thing completely out of his control. It says this, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. So Aram and Israel, Israel's no longer a superpower status at this point. Under Solomon, they were, you know, superpower. But the kingdom split. They have, they've rebelled. They've, they've uh, gone after idols instead of following the one true God, and God has allowed them um, to, their power to decrease and allowed enemies to come in. And so Aram was one of their enemies, and they'd come, and they'd raid the border villages, and they'd take captives back with them. And that's exactly what happened here. As they raided, and they took this young girl, and she becomes a servant in the house of Naaman. And it says this, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. There's this prophet 
And boy, he's this guy. I mean, I've heard all these amazing stories from the time I was a little girl about the things that, that this guy did. He's like a super prophet. And God, I mean, gosh, he's, God uses him to do all these crazy things. I think it's cool that she has compassion on her master, even though she was stolen at a young age, right? And she looks at Adam and says, if he could just get over there, if he could just get to the prophet, he'd be healed. Naaman hears this. You remember, this guy, I mean, he's, he's been served a death sentence with no cure. And he hears this. And at this point, any shred of hope, he's going to go for it. And so he goes to his master, the king of Aram, verse 4, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he sends them, but he, he, he knows the king of Israel realizes and knows, and Naaman knows. I mean, we're kind of enemies. This is a, quite a request, you know. So I'm going to have to butter him up first if I want this whole plan and plot to, to uh, succeed. The second half of verse 5 says, So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. And I could break that down in poundages, but let me just put this like this. This is the equivalent of a couple million dollars in gold and silver. This is a massive quantity of wealth. And then you're like, oh, and he threw in a couple million dollars in some blue jeans. That's weird. <laughs> well, clothing were extremely, extremely valuable in this culture and at this time. And so this is an incredibly impressive gift that he sends along with him. And so imagine this scene as this entourage pulls up. He sent him with a letter. And here's what the letter said. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. So, you know, there's this like small army. They're rolling into town. Everybody's like, who is it? I think it's the Arameans. What are they doing? I don't know, but they got a white flag up. I think they come in peace. And he's got this wagon, you know, with all this treasure on it. And they're going, whoa, what's going on here? And the king's like going, what is going on? You know, this messenger runs ahead of him and tells him this whole story. And they roll into the king's court. And then they deliver this sealed letter from the king of Aram. And he breaks open the seal and he reads the letter. And that's what he reads. And the king does the same thing you would do. Like, what? You've got to be kidding me. And here's what he says. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Nobody could cure leprosy. Nobody could cure leprosy. And then he, he comes to the only logical conclusion. See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? And so, you know, remember time, when we read story, stories, accounts in Scripture, oftentimes the, uh, the time frame is compressed, right? And so I think he sends these guys off to, you know, some guest quarters, and he's like pacing back and forth going, what do we do? I don't know. How's this whole thing going to go down? Or are they plotting war? He's just trying to pick a fight, right? And around this time, somebody runs and brings the message, you know, the word just spreads like wildflower, 
Elisha would be a ways away from this place, and somebody runs up and tells Elisha, dude, here's what happened. These guys rolled in, and you know the king's freaking out. And Elisha's like, that king, that king. Because these prophets, they're always going back and forth with these guys for, for not following God, right? And so he sends word, says this, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, that's like a symbol of mourning of like, you, I, no way, right? That's basically what that means. It says he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the men come to me? Or have the men come to me, have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I love that phrase. That's such a studly phrase. <laughs> Dude, what's your problem? Where'd you tear your clothes, you little scaredy cat? Come on. Have the man come to me. He'll know there's a prophet in town. <laughs> I think that's awesome. But here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Why did he say this? About, by, by what Elisha is about ready to do, we, we understand that Elisha didn't send him this message because he's like beaten on his chest. When he says a prophet is what? A prophet is simply the mouthpiece of the one true God, the representative of the one true God to the people. So when he's saying this, there's a prophet in Israel, what he's saying is God is active, God is alive. And you, king, you've lost your fear and your reverence of God. And, and that's why you're freaking out in this situation. Have the dude come to me, and he's going to experience the one true God. And so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. See, Elisha lived probably way out on the borderlands, kind of where prophets lived because they're kind of weird, you know, usually. I mean, just look at John the Baptist, right? He's like camel's hair, eat locust, wild-eyed, you know, prophet kind of guy. So Elisha, now check this out. So Naaman rolls up with his whole entourage, you know, and all this treasure, and they get up there, and they pull up in front of his house, you know, in the Hummers, and, and uh, pull the trailer and, and open the trailer up, and here he, like, they take the canvas tarp off of this massive treasure and all these clothes and they're setting it out so it shines real nice in the sun. And, and Naaman's working himself up to make this bold request of the prophet. And they knock on the door. And here, uh, you know, Elisha's kind of peeking out the window, checking this all out. I think he gets a sly grin on his face. And remember, prophets, I mean, he, I, I think God like whispers in his ear, hey, let's mess with this guy. I want to change this guy's life, but if you just go out there and do something, it's, you know, he'll, he'll appreciate it, but let's mess with him a little bit. And so Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. So this great Naaman, he waits out here and he's waiting for this prophet of God to come out and the dude doesn't even have enough respect to pop his head out the door. He sends some lowly messenger out. Um, yeah, life's just kind of busy right now, but I passed the message along to him, you know. Um, I, I could put you through to his voicemail if you'd like, but I can just pass on what he said, you know. I mean, he's not very good about returning phone calls, right? 
And basically what he said is, here, just go out to the river, that Jordan. Yeah, I know, it's a little ways away. Yeah, it's, it's kind of dirty at this time of year, but you know, I, he just said, go out there, dip yourself seven times, take a good bath seven times, and then you'll be cool. All right, see ya. He walks back in the house, right? And Naaman does what lots of people who think they're pretty great and, and deserve a full explanation do. This ticks him off. He's like, who does this thing? I think I, I, does he realize he's talking to the commander? The commander of the army of Aram? Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I mean, he wants like, I want like a ceremony. I want something big. I want the dude to come out and, you know, do his little thing because that's what, you know, he's expecting because from his culture, you know, they had like sorcerers and stuff who would do stuff like that and incantations. That's what he's thinking this is all about. And Elisha knows if I just go out there, he's just going to think it's that kind of thing. I want him to understand that what God does in his life is really God. I don't have anything to do with it. But Naaman doesn't get any of that. He's just mad. He's angry. He says this then. He's like, it's the Jordan River. Have you seen how dirty the Jordan River is? My wife got baptized in the Jordan River like years ago. Some of you, anybody else? Cool spot. Um, but it's really dirty. And he's like, he's like, are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. He's like, I'm gonna look like an absolute idiot. The guy won't even talk to me. This whole thing is just humiliating. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And see, he'd been asked to do something. He'd been asked to do something that he didn't understand, right? That he didn't know, that he didn't have all the information for. And at this point, Naaman had somebody in his life that cared about him enough to speak truth to him, even though he was the great, powerful man. And some of you have someone in your life who is willing to speak truth to you, and you need to listen to that voice. This probably sounds a lot like your wife, or your mother, or, or your coach, or your youth pastor, right? You need to listen to that. And at this point, somebody had the, the guts to stand up and go, uh, Naaman, here's what he said. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? And see, this is what Naaman wants to do. I mean, if the prophet had told him, what I want you to do, oh great Naaman, studly commander of the army, I want you to run out and scale Mount Carmel to the eagle's nest and pluck the tail feather from the eagle and bring the feather down and we shall have an incantation. He would have been like, yeah, I'm down, like, Let's make it happen, right? He would have swam right through that Jordan River to do that. But see, here's the thing. He was asked to do something that seemed ridiculous. He was asked to do something that didn't make any sense. See, that, that would have made sense to him. 
Somehow he's proving himself valiant before God and making himself worthy, right? But what he's asked to do doesn't make any sense. You see, so many times in life we don't have all the information, do we? But we have God's instruction. We know that God has said, in this situation, here's, here's what I want you to do with your moral life. And now the culture is saying, you know, culture is saying, well, you know, that's ridiculous. What makes the most sense is why don't you move in first and try it out, you know? Now, statistically, we know that's a very poor choice. But even without that, you have what God says, right? You have what God says when it comes to your moral life. Culture says, hold and grab everything you have. Jesus says, live your life with radical generosity. That's just silly. You realize the kind of boat payment you could pay for with that, right? I mean, that's just silly. Why would you do that? Culture says, you know, just cut some corners here or there in your, in your profession. Everybody in your profession does that. It's the way you got, it's just what you got to do to get ahead. God's word says, have integrity. And you know what God's saying to do. You know the right thing to do. God's word says, don't gossip. And yet, you know, you have this whole get, get group at school and everybody gets together and man, there's some awful stuff said. And if you don't pipe in, all of a sudden, or if you walk away, right? Because you can sit there and be silent and not make any change. But you can walk away and say, you know, we, we really shouldn't be talking about them like that, right? God's word says, you're, you might look foolish. You don't have all the information. You don't know how it's going to come out. God's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I want you to take this step of faith in this ministry thing, or I want you to take this step of faith in, in, your, in your career. I want you to step out. You don't have all the information. You don't know how it's going to end. And see, Solomon, the wisest guy who ever lived, up to Jesus, he said this. And I think it, it's something you have to just refresh in your memory. Because as you, as you lose that awe and respect and trust of God, you're going to miss out on experiencing what he wants for you. Solomon said this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. That you trust in him with all your heart. God, I trust you. I don't understand why you're asking me to do this, but I trust you. I trust you. And then it says, do not lean on your own understanding. It doesn't say don't access your knowledge, don't use your brain. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying don't rely just on what you can understand because you're not God. You don't have all the information. You might be really, really smart, but you're not God. So it's great to have information and knowledge. Just don't lean on it. Just don't put all your weight on that. Use your brain. Engage your brain. And it says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And see, too often in the English language, this word has come to mean basically, um, you know, at the end of that big touchdown pass, you know, the guy's catching it, catches it, runs it into the end zone, does the dance. Sorry, I won't do that. <laughs> yeah. And then what? He goes, uh, you know, sticks a finger up in the air like, God. Ah, 
that's cool. I'm glad he's like it. But we think that basically acknowledging God just means in all my ways, I just need to give God the nod, like, yeah, God. Yeah, the man upstairs. See, these are lang- this is language that's in our culture, isn't it? And this is such a deeper meaning when you dig in to the Hebrew. It means an intimate knowledge. It means being intimately acquainted with God and then adjusting your life to who God is. That you get to know God, that you get to know what God says and then you adjust. In fact, the NIV version of this, which I think is is good, but it's not quite as as accurate, but it conveys the thought, is in all your ways, submit to him. In all your ways, submit to him. That you take your will and say, I'm going to acknowledge, I'm going to know you, I'm going to get to know you in a deep way, and I get to know what your word says about my life, and, and then I'm going to choose to align my life. Remember, wisdom is aligning your life with the way God actually created things to be. And the thing is, sometimes you don't understand. Many times you don't understand. And the big question in that time is, am I going to trust you? Or am I going to wait and stomp my feet and stiff arm you until I say, why, 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 until you give me the answer I want, right? And here's the thing, just like your mom or dad when you were four, God is God. And he doesn't respond very well to temper tantrums. (laughs) And there are things that he's called you to do that you may never understand until after you step out and do them. There's blessing that you can experience, but you will not know it until after you step out and you trust and you obey. Back to Naaman's story. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. Can you imagine that? Down, up. He's looking over at his arm. No, down, up, you know. About the fifth time, he's like, all right, I feel like a real idiot, you know. <laughs> Sixth time, down, up. Nothing's changing. This isn't going to work. See, this is how you feel a lot of times, right? In life. Down, up. <gasps> and as he comes out of that water, there's not a sign of leprosy left. And his flesh was restored and became as clean or became clean like that of a young boy. And I think the Hebrew there is actually a baby's bottom, but I'm not sure about that, you know. (laughs) Just kidding. Don't quote me on that or tweet me on that or anything like that. (laughs) Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. I mean... He goes back to Elisha now. Up from the Jordan, back, makes the track back, and he stood before him and said, I mean, can you imagine this? He just got his life back. What do you, what do you say when you've experienced something like this in your life? Well, see, because of, because of what Elisha told him to do, because he had to step out and do something he didn't understand, because it wasn't some sort of big, you know, chant kind of thing, some sort of magical ceremony, this guy knows who is responsible for what he just experienced. He, he knows he has just had a real, genuine encounter with the one true God. And this is what he says. He says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
I'm confident of that. I know that. I know that. And see, all this wisdom stuff, as we talk about it, all this stuff when we talk about making wise choices, it's, it's not just about having, you know, it's not just about doing the right thing, you know, doing the right thing. It's not just about doing the wise thing so that you can have a better life and things go better for you and, you know, you can get to your future. That's all great. But at the heart of true wisdom is trusting God. And the reason at the heart of true wisdom is trusting God and obeying God. And the heart of the reason of why that's such a big deal isn't just so your life can go better. Isn't just so you can get to a better spot and, you know, and get down the road and have a legacy and all those things. Those are wonderful things. Those are fringe benefits, but the true heart of making the wise choice of trusting and obeying God is so you experience God. Because there's certain things that you will never experience about God until you say yes to him and you trust him and you obey. There's, there's an encounter that God wants to have with you that you will not have until you decide to trust and obey. Kind of like stepping out when we did this thing. There were was, there was things God had for us that we had no idea how they would pan out until we stepped into them and we trusted him and said, okay, God, I don't have all the details. I'm scared to death. I'm gonna do this thing. And I believe there's some of you that there's an area of your life where God is just waiting for you to trust and obey, and you're scared. You're scared you're going to be lonely. He's saying, trust and obey. You're scared of fighting for that marriage because you're scared you're not going to be happy. But you know, as you pray, you know what he's calling you to do. And I think there's an experience in your financial life, in your in stepping out in faith towards something he's called you to. And it's not until you step out and do it that you're going to experience a new level of intimacy and relationship with him. There's an old hymn I remember singing as a kid. Some of you, if you grew up in church, you'll know it. Here's, here's what it says. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and to all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And here's how Naaman's story ends. He had just said, now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel. And so he asked the prophet, he says, so please accept a gift from your servant. I got this whole wagon full of goodies here. Please accept this. And the prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I'm served, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. See, Elisha knew I had nothing to do with this. God just whispered in my ear and I sent my messenger out and it was God at work. And he wants to make sure Naaman gets that. He wants to cement the experience with God that Naaman just had. And so Naaman finally gets it and he says this, if you will not, said Naaman, 
Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. That's kind of weird. Okay, wait. Uh, I won't take your gold, and so you want some dirt? But see, in ancient times, they thought of gods as territorial. They thought, so the God of Israel was literally the God over the land of Israel. And he says, what I want to do is I want to take a little chunk of Israel back home with me, and I'm going to set this little chunk out in my backyard so that I can come down and I can kneel on here in this territory that I'm actually going to be in Israel praying to the God of Israel. This is the true conversion that he has. He says this, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any God but the Lord Yahweh, the one true God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see, leprosy at this point was just a memory. He He had been totally transformed and overwhelmed by God's work in his life. His life had been changed because he had an encounter with a living God. And some of you, there's that thing that God wants to do in your heart. He wants to have, he wants you to experience that next step with him. But he's waiting for you to trust and obey. And we all, many times, have times in our life where we wish it worked different than that, right? where we wished we had all the information ahead of time. But if he gave you all that, guess what? It wouldn't be faith, would it? It wouldn't be faith. And so here's, your, here's the bottom line. Here's all I want you to take away. And here's your homework. I want you to take this scripture home, and I want you, if you haven't already, to memorize it. And if you have already as a kid, I, I want you to put it somewhere where you will think about it this week. Where you think about it. One of the best spots, I think, is on the lock screen of your phone. And if you don't know how to do that, ask your grandkids. Uh, That way you'll be reminded. But before we get out of here, I want to repeat this one more time together. This amazing scripture. This is one of my favorite scriptures. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let's do this together. Ready? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Let me pray for you. Would you stand? As we stand and as we bow our heads and close our eyes, there's some of you in the room right now that you've been resisting saying yes to Jesus in your life. And part of that thing is you don't have, you know, you still have questions. You still have things that haven't been answered for you. And I think it's fine to keep getting your questions answered, but, but you got to know you're, you're never going to get every one of your questions answered. But if you feel the Holy Spirit right now, if you feel that sensation of your heart beating fast, I, I, that's one of the things, the Holy Spirit drawing you t- to faith in Jesus And I want to invite you, I'm going to pray a simple prayer right now, and either out loud or in the quietness of your heart, you can just repeat this after me, just as a declaration of trust in Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I need you. I want to put my full faith and trust in you for the forgiveness of my sin. I want to turn my life to you and follow you all my days. And Lord, for the rest of my friends here, 
I just ask that you would um, just give them the courage to do what you're calling them to do, Lord. And then I pray that as they do that, that you will just move in their life in a significant way, and they will have a new depth of experience and intimacy with you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.